From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coal-fire power plant owners appeal yet another clean air rule to the U.S. Supreme Court. The law is finally catching up with the health effects and the environmental effects of coal-fired electricity. The coal industry has enjoyed a lot of benefits and a lot of exemptions from strict environmental regulation, and those days are over, and I think it's fair to say that coal's days are numbered. Also, rhinos in Kruger Park in South Africa are being killed because their horns are so valuable on the black market. Poaching takes advantage of the high level of poverty around Kruger. Poaching is, is, is a problem simply because there's high uh, monetary values involved, and uh, if someone is poor, then obviously um, it's an easy access to money. Plans to move the rhinos may help. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Clean Air Act is one of America's most important environmental laws, and using its authority, President Obama's EPA has imposed stricter mileage requirements for vehicles and restricted smog crossing state lines. But industry strongly resists the use of this act to clean up power plants, especially to curb carbon dioxide and mercury and other toxins from coal. The EPA says its latest rule to cut toxic power plant pollution would prevent up to 11,000 premature deaths from cancer and respiratory illnesses. But coal power plant operators say the rule would cost too much money, and the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear their appeal. Pat Parento is a professor of environmental law at Vermont Law School, and he joins us to talk about the case. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Pat. Thank you, Steve. So what exactly is the Mercury Rule, anyway? The Mercury Rule is a rule under Section 112 of the Clean Air Act that regulates hazardous air pollutants from, among other things, coal-fired power plants. Mercury and arsenic are two of the primary pollutants, and coal-fired power plants emit about 99% of mercury and arsenic in the country. And why is the coal industry challenging this rule? Very expensive rule, almost $10 billion by EPA's estimates to comply, but also EPA asserts that the rule will create about $90 billion in, in health benefits from cleaning up mercury pollution through scrubbers. Now, what did the uh, Court of Appeals in D.C. say about the industry's complaints? The Court of Appeals upheld EPA's rule by a two-to-one vote, and uh, there was a dissenting vote by Judge Kavanaugh claiming that EPA should have considered the costs of the rule uh, when it decided it was appropriate, that's the word of the statute, to regulate hazardous air pollutants from coal-fired power plants. So the D.C. Circuit said EPA had discretion to regulate these emissions based on health effects and did not have to consider their costs. So the dissenting judge's view that costs should be considered is what uh, got industry a ticket to the Supreme Court? Yes. The, the statute is vague. It says that EPA may regulate where appropriate and necessary after studying the issue. And EPA has been studying hazardous air pollutants like mercury for over 10 years uh, until it finally decided to take very decisive action and require that all these new and existing coal-fired power plants install scrubbers to take the mercury out. What do you think of the chances that uh, industry gets its way and the Supreme Court uh, reverses uh, the appeals court and the EPA and the rule gets thrown out? Well, anytime the Supreme Court takes a case, it's usually not to simply affirm the lower court. So at least four justices 
out of the nine justices have some questions about why EPA didn't consider costs. It's interesting that the court reframed the question presented uh, differently than the way the industry had framed it. And basically, the, the court has said, was it reasonable for EPA to decide that costs were not relevant to the consideration of regulation on the basis of health benefits? So the, the question, as the court has framed it, is, is narrower than what the industry was looking for. That might mean that the ultimate decision could be a close decision, five to four, for example, but it might well uphold EPA's discretion since the statute doesn't mandate that EPA must consider costs. So the court may say it's reasonable for EPA to say it doesn't have to consider the costs. Now, when in the past has the high court looked at uh, the costs of implementing uh, air pollution protections? The, the main case is called the American Trucking Association case. This was a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court several years ago, and the question there dealt with what are called national ambient air quality standards. These are things like smog and soot and lead. And in that case, the court said not only was EPA not required to consider costs, it wasn't allowed to consider costs. Now, the language of the provision at issue in the American trucking case is different than the Section 112 provision that's at issue in the Mercury case. So there's different language to be interpreted, and that's why perhaps the earlier case isn't necessarily binding precedent. But it does show that the Supreme Court has in the past said that costs really aren't a relevant consideration when you're talking about human health. Um, How important is this case? And in particular, how is the challenge to the Mercury rule related to the efforts by the administration to put in rules to uh, regulate power plants for CO2. Yeah, that is a very interesting question because the power plants are now subject to regulation under two different provisions, Section 112, which regulates the hazardous pollutants, and Section 111D, which regulates carbon. And interestingly enough, the industry groups that are now claiming that EPA's mercury rule is invalid are the same groups that are claiming in the rule challenge to the carbon rules that EPA doesn't have authority to regulate coal-fired power plants because they're already regulated under Section 112. So if the court overturns the mercury rule on the grounds that it was improperly adopted under Section 112, that will undercut the industry's arguments that EPA can't regulate carbon emissions from coal-fired power plants under this other section 111. So industry is is actually arguing at cross purposes in these two cases. And depending on which way the court decides the mercury rule, it may defeat their argument in the challenge to the carbon rule. Sounds like catch 22 to me. Does sound like that, doesn't it? Well, what's going on here? I mean, why so many challenges from the coal industry all at once and seemingly inconsistent challenges? Well, I think the reason is because the law is finally catching up with the health effects and the environmental effects of coal-fired electricity, and in fact, coal mining and coal use in general. And a number of rules have now been issued by EPA. There was the cross-state rule dealing with pollution that drifts over state borders and affects people downwind. There was the rule now setting limits on mercury. There's the proposed rule to set limits on carbon. EPA has tightened the the smog rule. That's also going to be challenged. 
All of these rules are, are aimed squarely at coal, and all of them are saying that, that coal's effects have to be taken into account and have to be regulated. And that means that coal-fired generation in the United States is in serious trouble. And I think the industry is reflecting that they're under stress. Some would say that uh, the days of the coal industry and particularly coal-fired power plants are numbered uh, in America. Uh, to what extent do you think that this lawsuit and some of the others are part of a rearguard action, you know, desperation plays? It does look that way. The coal industry has enjoyed a lot of benefits and a lot of exemptions from strict environmental regulation, and those days are over, and I think it's fair to say that coal's days are numbered, at least as far as generating electricity. You see natural gas coming online much more quickly. You see renewable energy sources expanding. You see energy efficiency improvements being made, and all of that spells bad news for the coal industry in the U.S. Pat Parento is the professor of environmental law for Mountain Law School. Thanks so much, Pat. You're welcome, Steve. Well, if burning coal is bad for public health, mining it underground can cause serious illnesses like black lung, and it's a dangerous profession. In 2010, the deadliest U.S. mining accident in over four decades killed 29 workers in an explosion at the Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia. Don Blankenship, a prominent coal baron and the CEO of Massey Energy that owned the mine, now faces criminal charges for an alleged conspiracy to evade federal mine regulations and mislead investors and regulators. Patrick McGinley, a law professor at West Virginia University, was part of a state investigation into the accident, and he detailed the federal charges against Mr. Blankenship. The first conspiracy count accuses Mr. Blankenship of overseeing operations that put profits before miners' safety. And the indictment includes references to a paper trail of communications between Mr. Blankenship and uh, mine officials at the Upper Big Branch Mine, uh, indicating uh, that he was placing extraordinary pressure uh, on the management there to produce coal and give short shrift to basic safety procedures. Uh, there's another count that uh, alleges that Mr. Blankenship created an atmosphere and instructed the president of the Massey Energy subsidiary uh, to uh, carry out a policy of warning uh, miners underground that federal inspectors were on their way to inspect the mine. And, and that uh, type of uh, warning is a felony under federal mine safety law. Why is that illegal? If the mine is being operated in an unsafe manner and the law and regulations are not being complied with, then warning that the inspectors are on their way underground allows uh, the foreman and the miners working there to correct those uh, violations so they won't be cited and fined. What particular violations uh, are alleged here that... Uh uh, were being uh, allegedly gamed by Mr. Blankenship under his orders. The mine was being operated without regard to the requirement that adequate ventilation be afforded miners working underground. And ventilation is known as the lifeline of a coal mine. Uh, ventilation, air blowing through the mine and exhausting, uh, carries out uh, dangerous explosive coal dust uh, and also uh, explosive methane gas. And the indictment alleges that the company was not following those basic uh, requirements and exposing uh, 
coal miners to, to exactly what happened, to a catastrophic event, which ultimately uh, killed miners as far as a mile away from the point of ignition. How surprised were you by the decision to indict Mr. Blankenship? I was surprised only insofar as uh, there was a question whether there was a political will in the federal government to proceed with an indictment. I worked on the investigation of the Upper Big Branch Mine for more than a year for the governor's independent investigation panel. And my view was that there was sufficient evidence to go much higher up the chain of management than the lower level Upper Big Branch employees who were previously indicted. You must have seen a lot of evidence uh, investigating this uh, for the governor of West Virginia. Uh, but uh, what, what pieces of evidence did you find most compelling? Well, it was, it was clear that Mr. Blankenship was receiving reports of production from the mine every 30 minutes by fax to his office and to his home. And there were men who worked at the mine who testified under oath in our investigation that their hands would shake when the phone rang from upper management asking about uh, secession of production for safety reasons. The fact that the the mine uh, was uh, not rock-dusted, which means material being sprayed in the walls and the floor, the ribs of the mine to suppress coal dust, which is very explosive. Uh, the evidence that very little attention was given to suppression of coal dust was shocking. And maybe the, the most uh, interesting and um, disturbing part of the uh, testimony I heard was that Massey Energy purported to be following what they called was an S1P2 process, safety first and protection second. Mr. Blankenship had testified before Congress that Massey's safety procedures were more stringent in more than 70 ways than, than federal law. That was clearly false and misleading and had been part of the Massey corporate mantra uh, for a number of years preceding the explosion of the Upper Big Branch Mine. Now, Professor, how, how have coal executives been treated in the past with uh, accidents similar to this? Well, the, there's never been a corporate CEO or, or chairman criminally prosecuted. That's why this uh, indictment of Mr. Blankenship is extraordinary and for many unexpected because of the century-long history of uh, failure to hold corporate officials responsible when a mine disaster has occurred. What kind of precedent could this set in terms of holding CEOs accountable for major disasters? Well, a basic premise of criminal law is that it can be used as a deterrent. And if for a century corporate officials who presided over unsafe mining practices got a free pass, then the law had no deterrent value. And hopefully this is a sign that history is past and that uh, corporate executives of coal companies will be held accountable if there's sufficient evidence to show their criminal culpability when minors are killed. Patrick McGinley is a law professor at West Virginia University. Thanks for taking the time with us. Sure, it's my pleasure. The federal judge recently imposed a total gag order in this case. Earlier, Mr. Blankenship's lawyer assured reporters in West Virginia that his client is entirely innocent of the charges. 
desperate measures to try to halt rhino poaching in South Africa for the Asian medicine trade. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The latest meeting of United Nations climate negotiators, known as COP20, the 20th Conference of the Parties, began the 1st of December in Lima, Peru, and it's a key stepping stone on the path to a new global climate deal in Paris next year. There's renewed optimism in the air after the two mega-polluters, China and the U.S., agreed to substantial cuts in their emissions, and solid commitments of $10 billion have been made for the Green Climate Fund. And there's a new commitment as well, to make human rights a guiding principle of any agreement, including green energy development and forest protection programs like RED. Marianne Lavelle is a science writer for The Daily Climate, and in two recent pieces, she examined the issue of what's being called the human rights cop. Welcome to Living on Earth, Marianne. Glad to be here, Steve. So how are climate talks now getting interwoven with human rights issues? I think if you went a few years back, most of the discussion would be about emissions cuts and timetables and uh, a whole lot of numbers. But as the years have gone on, the talk has been more about people, really, about social justice and human rights. The poor countries and poor people around the world are most affected by climate change, but they are the people who had the least to do with carbon emissions overload that we now are facing. One of the things that was done way back in the climate negotiations back in 2007 was to say that if we reduced deforestation and the degradation of forests, that it would help the climate situation since trees sequester carbon. But I gather that there are a number of human rights issues that have come up around the question of deforestation. Red. Uh, right. This was really thought of as a win-win solution because the richer nations could invest in projects to preserve forests in poorer nations. But it's not really preserving the forest as it is, but putting up, say, a palm oil plantation. And that completely changes the forest and makes it very much a different place than it was for the people who were living there. Another thing that is happening is fortress conservation, where Kenya will come in and just evict people who are living in the forest from their homes and put up fences to protect the forest. Well, that is not a solution that really keeps social justice and human rights in mind. We have to come up with solutions, uh, the advocates are saying, that really take into account the human beings who, who really are at the front line of protecting these forests. Of course, one of the goals of the international climate negotiations is to reduce emissions, and people point to hydropower as a way to make uh, electricity without putting carbon dioxide in the air. Of course, there's controversy over that, and I gather part of the controversy includes what happens the poor people who get displaced when a dam gets put in. That's right. How are we carrying out these clean energy projects? Are we making sure that uh, people get just compensation for land that they're giving up for these projects? Are they part of the decision-making? Is, is there a process to really keep the rights of the people living on this land uh, in account? 
There are big hydroelectric projects in Panama, for instance, where it's been very controversial because native residents are being displaced. And some of these projects have been stalled because of protests. And this is happening around the world. What do you make of uh, UN Secretary General uh, Ban appointing Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, as his special envoy for climate change? She, of course, was the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Right. And she has actually taken it upon herself to make climate justice a real issue that people are talking about around the world. She has her own foundation that's dedicated to climate justice. And it's just certain that she's going to be bringing all of these issues front and center. Right now, the the draft climate treaty does have some language about respecting human rights, but folks uh, like Mary Robinson uh, feel it does not go far enough. That's something that should be integrated into all actions on climate change. So how do you think addressing human rights uh, affects the urgency addressing the overall issue of climate change? The human rights issue has the potential to slow things down even further. I don't think there's any question that in a way it has already, because really what's held up these negotiations for so many years is the rift between rich and poor nations. And who is uh, willing to put in their fair share and what is a fair share. And uh, that really has stymied the negotiations all along. The social justice and human rights issues, they're there whether we make them explicit or not. Uh, What Mary Robinson and others are saying is let's just put it right out there on the table and let's be clear that this is what we're talking about. Marion Lavelle is a science writer for The Daily Climate. Thanks so much for taking this time with us today. Glad to do it. Now, a few people would say that rhinos are cuddly, but they are a majestic keystone species of the African savanna. They are also severely threatened by the demand for a rhinoceros horn from wealthy consumers in Asia, and their numbers are now reduced to a mere 25,000. Over 85% of the world's rhinos live in South Africa, mostly in game parks, but that does not necessarily protect them. Kruger National Park, South Africa's largest reserve, has lost nearly 600 rhinos this year to poachers. Park officials have considered many schemes to protect the rhinos, from poisoning the horns to humanely removing them, and now the park is selling off some of its rhinos in the hope of protecting them. Bobby Bascom reports from Pilonsburg National Park in South Africa. A red dirt path cuts through the savanna of the Black Rhino Game Reserve in South Africa's Pilonsburg National Park. Mikhail Jobert, co-owner of the reserve, bumps along in the back of a safari truck and points across a wide expanse of knee-high dried grass towards the anti-poaching unit charged with protecting the conservation land's rhinos. I'm right on that hill about half a kilometer in front of us on the right. That's usually where they are and stationed and everything. Um, they'll always try to find the highest place in 
they'll preserve and then they'll they'll change their sort of um, patrol tracks because you know you don't want any kind of routine because then it can be learnt. The anti-poaching units are similar to military personnel, and the job is just as dangerous. These guys that when they come on, they've got snipers and they've got AK-47s and they've just got weapons that can't match to what the anti-poaching guys have. So it's almost like a unprotected war zone. Black Rhino Game Reserve lost three rhinos to poaching this year, all of them within 100 meters of the road. It's a dangerous place for rhinos and the people protecting them, but it's still far safer than the country's largest park, Kruger National Park. Roughly 530 kilometers east of Palansburg, Kruger is home to more than 8,000 rhinos, the single largest population in the world, but they're losing them at an unsustainable rate. Between one and two a day are killed by poachers. Now the park is trying to sell off some of its rhinos to places like Black Rhino Game Reserve in the hope that they might find safer sanctuary. Howard Hendricks from the South African National Parks Conservation Services explains. Our um, translocation program is aimed at translocating uh, rhinos from hotspots, poaching hotspots, to areas of high levels of security. Kruger Park is a poaching hotspot for several reasons. First, it's huge, more than 19,000 square kilometers, about the size of the country of Wales, and difficult to manage. An even bigger problem, though, is the long, porous border Kruger shares with neighboring Mozambique. Until recently, the penalty for poaching in Mozambique was a small fine that rarely got paid. As a result, Hendricks says, roughly 80 to 90 percent of poachers in Kruger Park are from Mozambique, one of the poorest countries in the world. Poaching takes advantage of the high level of poverty around Kruger. Poaching is, is, is a problem simply because there's high uh, monetary values involved and uh, if someone is poor then obviously um, it's an easy access to money. It's estimated that rhino horn is worth more than a million rand or $90,000 per kilo. Although it's difficult to confirm that figure, it is the black market after all and conservation groups don't like to advertise its value, fearing it will spur more interest in poaching. In any case, poaching is a high-stakes, multi-billion-dollar industry. Again, Mikhail Jobert from Black Rhino Game Reserve. Per kilo, it's worth more than cocaine, gold, platinum, anything like that. It is run professionally by crime organizations, similar to a sort of drug cartel or anything. Earlier this year, a ranger and two staff at Kruger Park were arrested for rhino poaching. One rhino horn could be worth nearly a lifetime in wages for anti-poaching units. The heartbreaking reality is they aren't paid well at all. Just as um, policemen and law enforcement and teachers and stuff, you know, that's these jobs that should have a high-paying salary, it's just that the truth is they don't. Joe Barrett says the trick is to hire guards that genuinely care about the animals and feel passionate about protecting them. Rhino horn can be humanely removed without hurting the animals, much like cutting your fingernails. But the thickest, widest part of the horn is embedded in the rhino's skull.
they want every gram of the horn so they'll actually saw into the skull and they don't kill the rhinos beforehand they'll tranquilize them first so the rhino goes to sleep um, they remove the horn then the rhino eventually wakes up traumatized it's got this massive hole in its skull and then it actually bleeds to death so it's just so sad Rhinos are in a sad state today, and scientists worry that the number of rhinos being killed will soon exceed the number being born, threatening the species with extinction in the coming decades. But Joe Shaw, manager of the Rhino Program for World Wildlife Fund in South Africa, says the sale and translocation of rhinos being proposed has a proven track record for protecting the animals. At the turn of the 19th century, there were maybe only 50 southern white rhinos left in the world in just one park in South Africa. And it was the movement of these animals to new areas like Kruger Park that grew the numbers that we see today. So including this strategy to combat rhino poaching is actually really a tried and tested approach to, um, to combating this kind of threat. Kruger Park officials are still working out the details of their translocation sale, but observers like World Wildlife Fund are hopeful that moving some rhinos from poaching hotspots will be a step in the right direction towards saving one of Africa's most iconic species. Bobby Bascom, Palansburg National Park, South Africa. That report came to us from Radio Deutsche Welle. And we stay in Southern Africa for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to put their homes on a map and submit essays to the magazine's website, and we're giving them a voice. Your special place doesn't have to be exotic, but it certainly is for Karen Vermillier. I'm from Haberone, Botswana. That's the place where I live. So it's uh, near South Africa, and then Namibia is in the north, and um, Zimbabwe is right there too, and Zambia. So there's lots of wildlife all around. There's lots of people, and it's lively, but um, it's, it's also quiet. It's nice for our family. We have uh, two kids, and we like to take them on uh, game drives, which we can do right outside the city. There's a game park, a few of them actually, not far from here. So we love it that we can take our, our young kids and go see zebras and warthogs and ostrich and giraffe just uh, on a weekend or someday after school. Here's Karen's essay. The water pipe outside our gate burst early one morning. It was a warm night in Haberone, Botswana, a place I'd called home for two years. A new river bubbled up from the jagged hole in the ground and ran over the gate and into our thirsty yard. My mind was on mosquitoes that, I imagined, would now swarm to this wet oasis. Haberone is only a few hours away from the Kalahari Desert, whose name comes from the Setswana word, Hale, meaning great thirst, and Botswana struggles to meet the water demands of its growing population. A few weeks before, I had read another notice on water restrictions and the dropping level of water in the dams. We were urged not to use drinking water for gardens. Therefore, our yard was thirsty. The grass, long past any color close to green, 
had become a brown akin to the dust that sometimes swirled up around our car as we drove through the nearby game park searching for zebra and giraffe. The water was finally turned off by water utilities at the main line, and the river turned to a trickle and then stopped. My neighbor had come to help sweep some of the water away from the yard back into the street. The ground by the gate had softened as the water filled every crack in the soil, and it suddenly opened up to swallow her. She quickly put her arms out and stopped her fall into the muddy, watery cavern that appeared so swiftly below her feet. We pulled her shaking and wet from the hole, laughing a laugh of what could have been, but did not come to be. I told her my worries of the mosquitoes as we sloshed through the water, now up to our calves. She shook her head and said, it would not be a problem. By noon, all the water was gone, drunk up by the parched soil. A few days later, our yard turned back to green. In the Setswana language, pula, the word for rain, also means money, a mark of how scarce and valuable water can be in this parched land. For many months, it was very dry. And so what we would do is uh, we'd save our bath water and uh, take that outside and water our plants with that the rains just came. And so you can just see things are starting to come back now. The flowers are starting to come out and some of the plants are, are trying to peek their heads up from the ground and things like that. We have a lemon tree and all our lemons are still green on the tree, but they're starting to uh, turn a little bit yellow. So those should be ready in another few weeks. And uh, there is some small little uh, orange trees and a grapefruit tree, but those have not been very big this year because of the, the, the lack of water. That's Karen Vermillier from Habarone, Botswana. And you can tell us about the place where you live, if you like. There's more about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay at LOE.org. Coming up, a message of hope on global warming, despite the peril the planet faces. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time to take a trip to Conyers, Georgia for a look beyond the headlines. Our guide, as usual, is Peter Dykstra. He publishes Environmental Health News, ehn.org, and thedailyclimate.org, and he's on the line now. What's on tap today, Peter? Well, I'm all about history this week, Steve. Let's start with a story that a lot of folks may have gotten wrong. A New York Times feature called The Retro Report tracked this one down. Back in the 1980s, there was a flurry of reporting and a frenzy of activism over the potential cancer risk from radiation coming from high-voltage power lines. Now, there actually were studies that said there's a possible link between electromagnetic radiation from power lines and leukemia, right? Right. 
All right, back in 1979, there was indeed such a study suggesting a link, as well as another big study in 1987, but in the years since, many subsequent papers haven't really built on those findings. And speaking in epidemiological terms, 35 years is plenty of time to establish health patterns. A few scientists still continue to research the link, while some others say there's little chance at this point that radiation from power lines is a human health threat. So if the research hasn't come in to back up the original concerns, are we mostly dealing with a fear factor here? Well, possibly. Some folks in the media have been known to play up scary things, and this one has all the ingredients. Fear of cancer, particularly in kids, a risk we can't control. Uh, you know, there might be other reasons to be concerned about power lines in many parts of the country. Rights of way for power lines are still maintained by applying a healthy dose of pesticides. Uh, and also, huge steel towers and cables galloping through the countryside are just plain butt ugly. That last one isn't peer-reviewed, but it seems to be a universal feeling. Bottom line, after 35 years of scrutiny and study, there's still no smoking gun to show that a significant health threat exists from power lines. And the other bottom line is that most environmental science gets validated over time, but not all, or at least not so far. What's next? A story from the Globe and Mail in Canada about a true science hero. Frances Oldham Kelsey is 100 years old now, but in 1960, she was a mid-level bureaucrat at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. If you were born in the U.S. in the early 60s, Frances Kelsey may very well have saved your life. Peter, I think you may have just gotten some people's attention. Yeah, Thalidomide was a wonder drug widely used in Europe and Canada in the late 1950s. It was prescribed as a sedative, and for pregnant women, it made morning sickness go away. There was a clamor to approve thalidomide for use in the U.S., and all that stood in the way of FDA approval was the sign-off from medical officer Frances Kelsey. She had some serious questions about side effects from the drug, and despite relentless pressure from the manufacturer, she stood her ground until those questions were answered. And anyone who knows the history of thalidomide knows that those answers came in the form of a health disaster. Yeah, in, in the countries where thalidomide was rushed to the market, it's blamed for thousands of deaths or serious deformities in the children of the pregnant women who took it. The U.S. escaped the disaster all because one government worker stood up to pressure and put health and safety first. Ah, so it's possible to be a government bureaucrat and a hero at the same time, huh? Now, what do you have on the history calendar for us this week? 81 years ago this week, prohibition was repealed, and America could legally drink once again. Not that that many people had been deterred by the law in the first place, but Steve, the end of prohibition had a huge environment and energy angle as well. Alcohol for drinking was still made and sold and smuggled throughout the prohibition era, and it helped build the mafia and gangsters and all sorts of TV shows and movies. But when the making of alcohol was banned, Ethanol for fuel was effectively outlawed as well because ethanol, most commonly made these days from corn, is essentially alcohol. Which in turn put gasoline in the driver's seat as the fuel of choice for cars, huh? Well, it didn't literally put gasoline in the driver's seat. I, I think that's still illegal. But yeah, two titans of the early 20th century took opposite sides on prohibition. Henry Ford was opposed because his iconic Model T cars were designed to run on ethanol. John D. Rockefeller and his oil business viewed ethanol as the main competition, so he was very pleased to see it outlawed. And only in recent years has ethanol recovered, but... Then again, corn-based ethanol has more than its share of critics today, right? 
Pretty much. It made something of a comeback on both sides in World War II when oil and gasoline were in short supply. The Germans actually fueled their V2 rockets with ethanol. Uh, renewable energy standards today give us a blend of ethanol and gasoline. The Corn Belt loves ethanol. Presidential candidates praise it while passing through Iowa. But its pollution burden and its real value is subjects of debate. But prohibition and its ban of ethanol from 1919 to 1933 tipped the scales in favor of gasoline, and it changed the course of history. Well, thank you, Peter. Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Talk to you soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. For 40 years, Frances Beinecke has been involved with the urgent need to protect our environment. She first worked as an intern at the Natural Resources Defense Council back when it was getting started and stayed. For the past eight years, she's been NRDC's president and for eight years before that was executive director. Now she's stepping down and has written The World We Create, a book subtitled A Message of Hope for a Planet in Peril. Welcome to Living on Earth, Frances. Well, thank you, Steve. So great to be here. Well, let's go back. Your early life gave you a love of nature and the U.S. landscape, a house in the Adirondacks. Your father taught you to fish. You were a keen hiker. You know, I was able to see a lot of the American landscape when I was very young, which really caught my attention and really, I think, created a passion. And then when I was in college and later on, I became a very avid hiker and a lover of nature. So, you know, it sort of came on throughout my childhood. So... You were a student back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's exciting times for the environmental movement. You got Earth Day, the new laws for the Clean Air Act and water, but and a great time for activism. How much did that affect you? It really affected me very, very significantly. So when I got to college in 1968, you know, that was really at the beginning of the very strong anti-war movement, and I was swept up in that. We went to Washington, we joined marshes, we were on strike at our universities. I think that for me, that really formed my commitment to social change and to civic engagement. Given the current climate crisis, how much of the spirit of the 60s and 70s do we need today, do you think? Well, first of all, we really need it. And the thing I'm really heartened by is it's coming back. People are both rising up, they're raising their voices and they're also looking at what are the alternatives, what are the clean energy pathways that we need to go down. You were, of course, a member of the President's Commission on the BP Macondo well disaster. Of course, the Commission's final report was critical about just everybody involved in that. What's your biggest takeaway from that experience, looking at how the fossil fuel industry conducts itself? Well, my biggest takeaway, which was not uh, new, but it was a potent reminder, was how immensely powerful the oil industry is. It was a reminder that they basically own the game, and if we don't have a system of laws and oversight and enforcement, uh, the environment and the public well-being and the economy of people who are living near their operations are at risk. It just doubled my resolve to ensure that we have a system of safeguards now, for a number of years, uh, NRDC, the organization that you're the retiring president of, uh, was at the forefront in trying to get the cap-and-trade through Capitol Hill. Um, didn't work. What do you think went wrong, and what do you think needs to be done now? 
It didn't pass for a lot of reasons. Uh, I think first and foremost, it was the downturn in the economy that really made it very difficult to get something as sweeping as that passed. But one thing coming out of that was it did not alter our resolve at all because climate is such an important and urgent matter. It really made us double down and look seriously at what are the strategies that we needed, where did we need to make the investment to really build the public case and support for action on climate. And now what we're focused on is using the authority of the Clean Air Act under the executive authority of the president to get at our largest source of emissions, which is our power plants across the country. And that's something that, you know, we hope and we're working hard to achieve in the next two years, adoption of these carbon pollution standards under the Clean Air Act. How fair is it to say that uh, the failure of that cap-and-trade legislation is a sign that the fossil fuel industry is simply not willing to come half the distance with people who are concerned about climate, that it's their way of the highway? You know, the industry, the fossil fuel industry, has a great deal of money. They have a lot of power. But what we have are large numbers of people and a democracy that is engaged in the issue. And I think what we have to do is really to ensure that voices and uh, numbers of people are raised for a different pathway. So the recent election uh, brought gains for the Republicans. Uh, it doesn't look like there's much likelihood of congressional action to take on fossil fuels uh, over these next couple of years. And the new likely majority Senate leader, Kentucky's Mitch McConnell, has made it a top priority to approve what Keystone XL pipeline and defund any carbon controlling measures by the EPA. What's your view? So that is absolutely not what our agenda is. We think it's imperative to act on climate, to reduce emissions, to use the Clean Air Act Authority, which was upheld by the Supreme Court three times. Uh, We realize this is going to be a fight uh, with the Congress, and, you know, that's a fight we're prepared to undertake. We also believe that the president is deeply committed to putting these standards in place and will do everything within his power to ensure they are adopted. This will not be an easy path over the next two years, but it's certainly a path we're going down. What kind of backbone rating on climate change would you give the president of the United States? Uh, Mr. Obama's first four years, there was really not much of a mention about climate. Yes, we did have vehicle uh, emissions uh, standards, mileage standards come forward, but he didn't really get up on the bully pulpit till after he was reelected. How strong is he really on this issue? Well, I think, Steve, that the president is very strong on the need to act on climate. On June 25th, 2013, when he made his speech at Georgetown and really kind of laid the template down for what his climate strategy was going to be, it was very comprehensive. I mean, it included the carbon pollution standards, but it really directed every agency in the federal government to have a very active climate agenda and figure out Uh, and take action on what they could do to reduce emissions and move us down a clean energy pathway. He really understands and sees what the long-term threat is to the country and to the planet. And, you know, I think the U.S. actually is in a very strong position through the um, fuel efficiency standards that he adopted in the first term and through these carbon pollution standards for the power sector to put the U.S. in a leadership position worldwide. You know, as you know, uh, the world leaders are going to gather in Paris in 2015 to try to, again, reach agreement on how to reduce our emissions from climate change. And I think the U.S. will be going into those conversations from a very strong place.
So since those days that you were an intern and you guys were wondering maybe where the next rent check would come from, NRDC has grown and developed beyond all recognitions. What do you think is the most important focus for the NRDC today? Well, first of all, you know, NRDC is 43 years old, and we now have 500 people and seven offices. We're a very large place, but we still have our primary commitment, which is to safeguard the earth and ensure that all people have a system of environmental protection. Uh, climate change is the very urgent threat that we face every day. We have as many as probably 100 people on NRDC staff working at one aspect or another of curbing emissions and unleashing clean energy. And people in our oceans program, our land program, our public health program are all working on aspects of this very serious threat. And, you know, we really are very focused on what are the solutions, what do we have to put in place, as well as making sure that people are aware of how very urgent this threat is. The subtitle of your book, Francis, is A Message of Hope. Now, of course, we're looking at the latest U.N. uh, reports that paint a fairly dire portrait of the state of the planet and the climate. Where is it that you find hope? Well, where I find hope, Steve, is in the engagement of people. I mean, just looking at the last three years, the number of people who are now understanding what the consequences of fossil fuel development is to them and wanting to go down a different pathway, whether it's the fractivists in New York who are very loud and determined not to allow fracking here, to the farmers in Nebraska who live along the Keystone Pipeline, to the people all across the Gulf whose businesses, whether the fishing industry or the tourism industry or even the oil industry, were put out of business because of the Macondo disaster. One of the most heartening things to me was the climate march uh, in New York City in September, where over 400,000 people joined together to demand climate action. And those 400,000 people were just a tip of an iceberg that's growing across the country of people demanding action on clean energy. And at the same time, There is a tremendous amount of clean energy being developed around the country. There's wind farms, solar arrays in state after state after state. And there are people who are employed in those industries, who are making money of those industries, who see this as a huge opportunity for the country. So it's both in the voices raised and in the economic opportunity that's being created that I see hope. Francis Beinecke is a retiring president of the Natural Resources Defense Council and author of the new book, The World We Create, A Message of Hope for a Planet in Peril. Francis, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Produced by the World Media Foundation, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, and Jennifer Marquis are all part of the team. Our show is engineered by James Kerwood with help from Carlin Dake. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International